order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Patricia Gibson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Patricia Gibson. Thank the Prime Minister for that answer. Will the Prime Minister take this opportunity to confirm that the UK Government intended to take £7 billion from Scotland over a decade through the fiscal framework? And will he, Mr Speaker... And will he, Mr Speaker, take this opportunity today to explain why this was the case? Apologise! Apologise! Only the SNP can try and maintain a grievance after a settlement has been put in place. What we have done is build a powerhouse parliament for Scotland that will have more powers, more ability to set tax rates, more ability to determine benefits for its citizens. And I think now is time for the SNP to stop talking about grievances and get on with government. My constituency has recently taken on six new apprentices and across South Ribble we've had more than 1,000 apprenticeship starts since 2014. Does my right honourable friend agree that this is time for government to stick with the plan so that even more companies have the opportunity to take on apprenticeships? friend is absolutely right. We have this very stretching target for three million apprentices to be trained in this parliament. We will do our bit by funding those programmes. We want business to do its part by contributing to the apprenticeship levy. But we do need small businesses like CSA in her constituency and indeed the public sector to get fully involved in training apprentices to give young people the chance to earn and learn at the same time. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. It's um, three years since the Government announced a policy of tax-free childcare. Could the Prime Minister tell us what the hold-up is? Well, we're introducing the tax-free childcare along with the 30 hours of childcare for everyone with a three- and four-year-olds, with a £6 billion commitment, with the start of the 30 hours uh, coming in in a pilot scheme this year. Jeremy Corbyn! Well, uh, Mr Speaker, the Treasury website describes it as a long-term plan. <laughs> well, it certainly is that, because it was supposed to be, it was announced in 2013 and isn't apparently going to be introduced until next year. Could the Prime Minister tell us why his promise of 30 hours free childcare for three- and four-year-olds is not there for one in three working parents who want their children to be cared for in a preschool? Well, first of all, on the tax relief on childcare, we lost a court case against some of the existing providers, so there was a delay, and the tax-free childcare will come in in 2017. As for the 30 hours, as I've said, there will be some pilot schemes this year and full implementation next year, which is in line with what we said in our manifesto. But I'm delighted he is helping me to promote government policy. Because, of course... 
when I became Prime Minister, I think we only had 10 hours of childcare, and it's gone up to 12, and then to 15, and now to 30. These are all the things that you can do if you have a strong economy with a sound plan. You're getting your deficit down, your economy's growing, you're able to do all of these things, and I'm glad we're able to talk about them. Today, Mr Speaker, the National Audit Office report confirms that one-third of families promised 30 hours free childcare now won't receive it. This is a broken promise. The NEO report also warns that many childcare providers are not offering the new entitlement due to insufficient funding. There are 41,000 three-year-olds missing out on free early education as a result of this. Will the Prime Minister intervene and ensure those children get the start in life that they deserve? We, we want all of these children to have the start in life they deserve, and I'm glad he mentions the National Audit Office report. Let me read him some of the things it says. It says this, the department has successfully implemented the entitlement to free childcare for three and four-year-olds with almost universal take-up of hours offered to parents. I, I think we should be congratulating the Secretary of State. The department's made significant progress in providing free entitlement to early years childcare. Parents and children are clearly benefiting from these entitlements. Stakeholders are positive about increasing the entitlement to 30 hours. All of these things we're able to do because we've got a strong and sound economy. What a contrast it would be if we listened to the right honourable gentleman. And because I regularly subscribe to the Islington Tribune, I can announce to the House his latest economic advisor, one Mr Yanis Varoufakis. He was the Greek finance minister who left his economy in ruins. That is Labour's policy in two words. Acropolis now. <laughs> Mr Speaker, that is not much help to the 41,000 children who are not benefiting from what they were promised by the government. And looking further on in the education life of children, According to the government's own figures, half a million children in primary schools are in classes of over 31, 15,000 are in classes of over 40. We all know the importance of both preschool and early years of education to give all our children a decent start in life, yet half a million are living in poverty and many are in oversized classes. Isn't it time for a serious government intervention to sort this problem out? Let, let me bring him up to date on the figures on all of these areas. First of all, obviously introducing these extra hours for childcare is a huge operation for the childcare providers, but I can update him since the National Audit Office report, actually that said only 58% of disadvantaged two-year-olds were accessing the free childcare offer. The latest information shows it's over 70% of, of those. Now, he mentioned um, uh, the number of teachers and overcrowded classes. Well, first of all, there are 13,000 100 more teachers than there were in 2010 because we've invested in Teach First, we've invested in bursaries and we've made sure uh, that teaching is a worthwhile career. And when it comes to school places, and I want to answer him because there are actually 453 fewer schools that are full or over capacity compared to 2010. 
So that is progress. And there are 36,500 fewer pupils who are in schools that are overcrowded. Again, why have we been able to do this? We protected education funded, protecting the money that went following every pupil into the school, introduced the pupil premium the first time any government had recognised the extra needs of children from the most poor backgrounds, done all of that so our school system is growing, there are more places, there are fewer overcrowded schools, all because we've got the strong economy and the right values in place. Mr Speaker, the problem is that class sizes are growing. The problem is that there is a crisis of teacher shortages as well. And I've been talking, as I'm sure the Prime Minister and others have, to many teachers. I've got a question from one, who I quote from Tom. I've been teaching for 10 years and I'm currently Head of Design and Technology at a successful secondary school. With increasing numbers of teachers leaving the profession, will the government now accept that there is a crisis of recruitment and also of retention of teachers in this crucial profession? I've just given the figures that there are 13,000 more teachers in our schools than when I became Prime Minister. But if he worries about teacher recruitment, perhaps he can explain this. How is it going to help his party's proposal to put up the basic rate of tax starting in Scotland? That is going to mean classroom teachers, nursery teachers, secondary school teachers, all paying more tax. What we're doing is helping teachers by saying you can earn £11,000 before you pay any income tax at all. I don't think that um, recruiting teachers is simply about money. It's also about having a good school system, which we have in place in our country. But it certainly won't help if we listen to Labour and put up people's taxes. The Prime Minister, Mr Speaker, seems to be in a bit of denial here. Ofsted and the, Ofsted and the National Audit Office all confirm there is a shortage and a crisis of teachers. Ensuring there are enough excellent teachers in our schools is obviously fundamental to the life chances of children. When 70% of head teachers warned they're now having to use agency staff to staff their classrooms, isn't it time the government intervened and looked at the real cost of this, which is damage to children's education, but also £1.3 billion spent last year on agency teachers? We had this agency working situation in the National Health Service and also in education. Aren't we moving into an era which we can term Agency Britain? I think he's got to look at the facts rather than talk down people who are working so hard to teach children in our schools. And the facts are these. Our teachers are better qualified than ever. A record 96.6% of teachers in state-funded schools now have a degree or higher qualification. Those are the facts. And I would argue that going into teaching, and now Teach First is the most popular destination for Oxbridge graduates, something that never happened under a Labour government. If you want to look at encouraging people to go into teaching, you've got to know that you've got a good school system with more academies, more free schools, higher qualifications, making sure that we've got rigour and discipline in our classroom, all of which has improved. But all of that is only possible if you have a strong and growing economy to fund the schools that our children need. Thank you, thank you, Mr Speaker. Fiddler's Ferry, uh, in my constituency is one of several UK power stations announcing closure this year. Uh, but in Germany and Holland, both of whose carbon emissions are higher than ours, they are building brand new mega coal power stations 
uh, much of that which we, we, are, we, are, we are going to import. It's very hard, Mr Speaker, for me to explain the logic of this to my constituents. Could the Prime Minister review the pace of our closure programme, particularly in the context of next year's energy crunch? No, well, my honourable friend raises a very important question, and he's right. There is big change in this industry because we want to see an increase in gas capacity, an increase in renewable capacity, and of course the restarting of our nuclear programme, which I hope to be discussing uh, with the French President this week. But he's right that security of supply must be our number one priority, and that is why we announced that we're going to bring forward the capacity market to provide this extra boost to existing stations, and this could indeed help. Uh, Fiddler's Ferry itself. But I would say to him and to everyone across the House, all these decisions we take uh, about energy, they have consequences for people's bills. He mentions Germany, and of course German electricity prices are 40% higher than in the UK. The level of subsidies makes up about 30% of German bills. Ours is less than half that level, and I think we do have to think through these decisions for the consequences for energy consumers. Angus Robertson. We all, we all have a right not to be discriminated against on the basis of age, of gender, of sex, of sexual orientation, of disability or ethnicity. Parents have rights to maternity and paternity leave entitlement. <coughs> Workers have the right to paid holidays and the right to work for no more than 48 hours each week. All of these are guaranteed through the European Union. Yeah. Does the Prime yeah. Minister agree well, that there are huge social benefits more. by being members of the European Union? Yeah. Yeah. The, the point I'd make is actually in recent years what we've done including under this government is actually add to the rights that people have including for instance maternity and paternity rights I think the emphasis in Europe now needs to be making sure that we expand our single market and make it more successful for our businesses recognizing that social benefits matter as well but principally I believe they're a matter for this house because Robertson Thank you, Mr. Speaker millions of UK citizens live elsewhere in the European Union European decisions have helped the environment, reducing sulphur dioxide emissions by nine-tenths. Relations between 28 EU member states happens often imperfectly, but through dialogue and agreement, which surely is a huge improvement on confrontations and wars of the past. Will the Prime Minister concentrate on the positive arguments for EU membership and reject the approach of Project Fear? Well, my arguments about being stronger in the reformed European Union, safer in the reformed European Union and better off in the reformed European Union are all positive arguments. I would add the point that he makes that, of course, things like pollution crosses borders and so it makes sense to work together. And I think the fundamental point he makes is one worth thinking about. He and I are both post-war children, but we should never forget when we sit round that table that just 70 years ago these countries were murdering each other uh, on the continent of Europe. And for all the frustrations of this institution, and believe me, there are many, we should never forget that fact, the fact that we talk, the fact that we work together, the fact that we resolve our disputes round that table. Mr Alberto Costa. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Those who foster children deserve our full support. 
To mark fostering February, last Friday I visited in my South Leicestershire constituency, J Fostering, which since its establishment in 2003 has helped over 1,250 children find a loving and caring home. Would my right honourable friend join me in thanking the team at J Fostering as well as the carers, but would he also agree to look into how the currently complex funding arrangements for over 18s could be considerably simplified to ease the transition of children into adulthood. Yeah. Now, my honourable friend makes a very important point, which we started to address in the last Parliament, because 18-year-olds were almost being sort of automatically ejected uh, from foster parent homes. And we all know, uh, as parents, it's very important to, to give people the support they need. That's why we changed the law in the last Parliament, so local authorities are under a duty to support young people who choose to remain with their foster carers beyond the age of 18. Uh, we We've put in place what's called a staying put arrangement. We're providing £44 million over three years, and in the first year of its rollout, almost half of those eligible to stay put have decided to do so. This is a real advance in our fostering arrangements. Neil Coyle. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. As this is my first ever question to the Prime Minister, I do hope. I do hope. I do hope my suit and tie matches mother's high expectations. Mr. Mr Speaker, in, in September last year, 16-year-old Mohamed Jure was stabbed to death in my constituency. His mother, Mariamma, discovered last week the CPS will not be prosecuting the man arrested for his murder. Sadly, she joins the 84% of people in Southwark who experienced knife crime last year who have seen no one held to account. The Home Office blame local police for that low prosecution rate, and I resent the accusation that my local police are not up to the job. Will the Prime Minister commit to ensuring my local police have the resources to investigate knife crime fully and bring more killers to justice? Yeah. The Honourable Gentleman uses his first question to raise an incredibly important issue, which is knife crime in our country. Now, the good news is that knife crime has come down about 14% since 2010, but he makes an important point about the level of prosecutions. I think last year there was something like 11,000 uh, prosecutions. The rate of prosecution is similar as for other areas, but clearly everything we can do to help the police, help the Crown Prosecution Service, uh, to increase the rate of prosecution is wholly worthwhile. We need to give the police police the resources they need, and we are through the spending round. We need to educate young people on the dangers of knife crime, and we need to make sure those who commit these crimes are properly punished. Mr Bernard Jenkin. Where is the fella? He's not here. Well, we're here from someone who is here. Mr David Davis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. For five or six years, for, uh, oh God, I know the, the house is in a state of some perturbation. But we must, we must hear from the right honourable gentleman when he's composed himself. We'll hear from him, Mr. David Davis. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. For five or six years, national insurance numbers issued to EU migrants have been hundreds of thousands higher than the official immigration figures. This implies the official immigration figures may be a dramatic underestimate. We can only know the truth of the matter if HMRC released their data on active EU national insurance numbers, which HMRC has refused to do. Will the Prime Minister instruct HMRC to release those statistics immediately so we can understand the truth about European Union immigration? Well, I'm glad we've got the single transferable question, if not the single transferable vote. It's 
uh, very good to hear from my um, honourable friend. The, the reason why these numbers don't tally is, of course, you can get a national insurance number for a very short-term visit, and people who are already here but without a national insurance number can apply for them. So these numbers are quite complex. The HMRC has given uh, greater information, and I'll continue that, make sure that continues to be the case. Bill Esterson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The proposed changes to Sunday trading are causing great concern to many retailers, shop workers, to their families, to faith groups and to all who want to keep Sunday special. Yet before the election the Prime Minister said he had no plans to change Sunday trading laws. When did he change his mind uh, or was it always his plan to scrap this great British compromise as soon as the election was safely out of the way? I thought it was right to bring forward these proposals because they are genuinely new proposals. New in that we are devolving to local authorities to make this decision. And secondly and crucially, and I'm sure honourable members opposite will, will be interested in this, is that we will be introducing new protections not only for new workers on Sundays but for all workers on Sundays. And so I think the House should look carefully at this idea, not least because our constituents are able to shop online all day, every day, including Sunday. All the evidence shows this will be welcomed by customers, will create more jobs, and I think we have nothing to be scared of, of, of moving into this new arrangement. Amanda Milling. Thank you, Mr Speaker. At the weekend, I visited a young enterprise trade fair where teams from across our local Staffordshire schools, including Rugeley Sixth Form Academy, were showcasing their entrepreneurial skills. Will my right honourable friend join me in wishing good luck to all of the teams? And does he agree that, with me that initiatives such as this are key to inspiring the next generation of entrepreneurs? Yeah. Yeah. I think my honourable friend makes an important point, which is for years in our schools not enough was done to encourage enterprise and entrepreneurship. And when we know that so many of the jobs of the future will come from start-up businesses and small businesses and rapidly growing uh, start-ups, it's absolutely right that in our schools we should be promoting enterprise not only through teaching but also through ex exercises, including uh, starting businesses for young people, but by giving them small grants. Andy MacDonald. Uh, yesterday, a Five Quarter Energy, a North East SME, ceased to trade. Their goal was the extraction of gas from coal deep under the North Sea. The government failed to provide a supporting statement <laughs> to secure foreign direct investment due to its inability to comprehend that not only would UCG secure our energy supply, it would also provide feedstocks to, to grow our industries and all of that totally decarbonised. Will the Prime Minister look into this appalling loss of opportunity and urgently change course and develop a meaningful industrial and energy strategy that British industry and workers and indeed the planet so badly need? I will certainly look at the case that he raises because we uh, back all energy projects that can create jobs and create growth in, in our country and we have a very active industrial strategy for that. I know that he's disappointed about our decision on carbon capture and storage but I would say to him that that is an extra billion pound capital investment and even after that there's no sign yet that carbon capture and storage can be even close to competitive uh, to even nuclear power or offshore wind. But I'll look carefully at the case that he mentions. Richard Benyon. Yeah. 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 A 
a very large proportion of the fish caught by British vessels and landed in the UK are exported to Europe, mainly to EU countries, and a great many of our fishermen fish in the sovereign waters of other European Union countries in a reformed regime, that, reforms that were led by the British Government. Uh, does my right honourable friend agree that our seas, those that exploit them, and the communities that they support are better off in a reformed European Union? I agree with my honourable friend and I pay tribute to him for the huge work that he did to reform the common fisheries policy from what was a, a, very, uh, a very poor policy to one that is now working much better for our fishermen. And when it comes to fishing and farming, the key issue is going to be making sure that Europe's markets remain open to the produce uh, that we land and that we produce. And that I think is going to be vital in the debate in the months ahead. Rachel Maskell. When more than 1,600 families are on York's housing waiting list, when care workers are forced to leave the city due to the cost of renting, delaying hospital discharges, when young families are placed in a single room in homeless hostels, and when supported housing schemes will have to close due to benefit changes, can the Prime Minister specifically state why? Up to 2,500 predominantly high-value homes are being planned for development on public land in York Central without building a single home for social rent. Well, the, the decisions made in York about planning are for York City Council and the local plan. But what I would say to her, one of the things that we did in the last Parliament that she was specifically designed to help York was to change the change of use provisions so that empty uh, offices could be used to build flats and houses for local people, which is happening in York and will help to make sure that city continues to thrive. Bill Wiggin! Will my right honourable yeah, friend yeah. agree to meet me and my constituent William Laurie, a brilliant young farmer whose business has been put at risk because the RPA haven't paid his basic payment scheme money? Will he also just, um, confirm that the RPA figures that they keep putting out are fictional, or does he agree with his uh, DEFRA secretary that it is the EU's Commission's fault for making the cap so complicated? Yeah. Well, what I'd say to my honourable friend is the system is complicated and uh, we need to make sure that the Rural Payments Agency does the very best that it can. To date, uh, 70,000 farmers have received their 2015 payments, which is now 81% of all claims paid. But there's always room for improvement. Indeed, we should look at all the devolved areas of the United Kingdom and see how they are coping uh, with this problem. But in terms of the issue more broadly, I think it's very important we maintain the access that our farmers have without tariff, without tax, without quota to produce the cleanest and best food anywhere in the world and export it unhindered to 500 million people in European single market. Gisela Stewart. Yesterday, the chair of the board of the International Campaign for Tibet, Mr Richard Gere, came to the House of Commons to meet with members of Parliament as well as you, Mr Speaker. Will the Prime Minister follow the example set by the United States Canada, Germany and Japan and write to the Chinese authorities to express his concerns about the oppressive counter-terrorism laws introduced in Tibet. Well, I wasn't aware of the visit by Richard Gere. I'll look very closely at what he said and perhaps get back uh, to, to the Honourable Lady about the issues he raises. Mr Stuart Andrew. Yeah. Yeah.
you, Mr. Speaker. Um, in 2004, the 16-year-old son of my constituent, Lorraine Fraser, was murdered by a gang, and the conviction of four of them was secured through joint enterprise. The recent ruling in the Supreme Court has caused Lorraine and many other victims' families a great deal of anxiety. Would my right honourable friend agree to facilitate a meeting to enable these families to discuss their concerns with ministers and understand what the ruling might mean in cases like theirs? Well, th through my honourable friend, can I extend my sympathy to his constituents? Uh, and he's absolutely right. We should begin by remembering the families of all those who've lost loved ones to dreadful crimes, who are worried about this judgment and what it might mean for them. I'm very happy to facilitate the meeting between him and one of the justice ministers to discuss it. I think we should be clear this judgment only referred to a narrow category of joint enterprise cases. And I think it would be wrong to suggest that everyone convicted under the wider law on joint enterprise will have grounds for appeal. I think it's very important that message goes out, but I'll fix the meeting that he calls for. Ian Austin. Speaker. People in the Midlands are absolutely furious to learn that the government's awarded a contract to make British medals to some French company. Imagine it, Mr Speaker, imagine it. You open your Distinguished Service Order or your CBE and it says Fabrique en France. Now, I'll I've visited, I've visited Midlands Medal manufacturers in Birmingham's jewellery quarters. They're the best in the world. The best in the world. He should go back to Downing Street, call in the Cabinet Office Minister and get this scandal sorted out. The, 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 the only point I would make to the Honourable Gentleman is I'm sure all of those in the Royal Mint in Wales would want to uh, uh, contest the fact that they make the finest medals uh, in the United Kingdom and I'm sure the competition between them and Birmingham is very intense. I'll certainly take away what he says. I wasn't aware of this issue but I'm always in favour where we can make something in Britain, we should make something in Britain. And the Soloway. Thank you. Carried out by my local newspaper, the Derby Telegraph, uncovered reports of alleged experiments carried out on children by medics at a medical facility in Derbyshire during the 60s and 70s. Can I ask the Prime Minister to ensure that a thorough investigation into this situation is now undertaken? Yeah. I'm very happy to give my honourable friend that uh, assurance. She's absolutely right to raise this. They are very serious allegations, and it's vital the full facts are considered. My understanding is the police, the local authority, and the NHS are working together, and there's an inquiry process under the Derby Safeguarding Children Board in line with its procedures. Uh, I would encourage anyone who knows anything about this to come forward and give their evidence to that board. Liz Kendall. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Syrian ceasefire is extremely fragile. There are reports that Russia is continuing to attack anti-Assad rebels, not Daesh, and that Islamic terrorists and weapons continue to pass into Syria across the Turkish border. What is the British government doing to ensure the ceasefire is properly monitored, and in particular to reduce serious tensions between Russia and our NATO ally, Turkey. No, well, the Honourable Lady is absolutely right to, to raise this. The cessation of hostilities is an important step forward, imperfect though it is, and it does enable the possibility of political negotiations starting next week. She asked specifically, what are we trying to do to make sure it's properly enforced? Uh, we're working with the Americans and the Russians to make that uh, happen. I've got a, uh, a, a European conference call with um, Vladimir Putin later this week to reinforce these points. Uh, even though 
though the ceasefire is imperfect, it is progress that we have it. Not every group is included in the uh, ceasefire, but basically there aren't the attacks that were taking place on the moderate opposition, which is welcome. And it's also enabled us with others to get aid into uh, communities that desperately need it, including uh, through airdrops and, and, and convoys. So I wouldn't put um, uh, too much optimism into the mix right now, but this is progress and we should work on it. Philip Lee. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Two weeks ago, I visited the Zassari refugee camp and the surrounding area on the Jordanian-Syrian border, primarily to assess health care uh, services. I was struck by the remarkable generosity of the Jordanian people. However, the local system is under quite significant uh, pressure. Would the Prime Minister meet with me to discuss further what Britain can do to enhance healthcare services on the ground, both for the Syrian refugees and the wider Jordanian community? Well, I'm very happy to meet with my honourable friend to discuss this. It is an extraordinary sight, that refugee camp, because of the scale of the endeavour underway. I think Britain can be proud of what we've done in terms of the direct aid that we've given and also the London conference that raised $11 billion for these refugee camps. I know he's got a long-standing interest on what we can do to uh, make sure facilities are delivered quickly, including on occasions using military facilities. Uh, and I think there may be opportunities for that, but we also need to make sure the emergency response from NGOs and the United Nations is as fast as it can be when crises like this happen in the future. Mr Barry Sherman. Mr Speaker, as the Prime Minister struggles with certain elements in, in his party over Europe, does he ever think back on an inspirational and visionary British Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, who faced, who faced similar difficulties but who stood up to the rebels in his own party and secured a yes vote for staying in Europe. And will he join with me? Because Harold Wilson's centenary of his birth is next week and could be celebrated across all parties, a great innovative Prime Minister. I do feel a natural sympathy for anyone who's had this job, uh, irrespective of what side of the house uh, we're, we're on. Uh, you know, I think he did do some very important things for our country. I know the honourable gentleman has a particular connection uh, to him. Uh, I wish um, his family well on uh, this important uh, centenary. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we approach things in different ways. Uh, but one thing we would have agreed about is that um, Britain's future is better off in a reformed European Union. Helen Waitley. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm sure the whole House will join me in expressing our condolences to Neil and Jennifer Burdett, the parents of two-year-old Faye, who died on Valentine's Day of meningitis B. Since Faye's death, 815,000 people have signed a petition calling for the government to vaccinate more children against meningitis B. I'm proud that the UK is the first country to have a vaccination programme for meningitis B. But could my right honourable friend make sure the government looks at what more could be done to prevent more children like Faye dying from this horrid disease? Well, first of all, on behalf of the whole House, let me extend my sympathies and condolences to Faye's parents and to all those who've had children suffering from this terrible disease. My honourable friend is absolutely right. We were the first country in the world to have this vaccination programme. The programme was based on the advice of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, who recommended targeting the vaccine to protect the infants at highest risk. 
Um, the incident of highest risk does occur in babies of five months, and of the 276 children contracting meningitis B last year, over 100 were under one year of age. But she makes important points. I think we need to look at all the evidence carefully, as do the expert bodies that advise us, recognising that Britain has already taken some very important steps forward by being the first country to vaccinate in this way. Order.